If you ever hear a character in a movie say something like, I laugh in the face of danger, it's almost always meant for comedic effect. The character who would say something like this is usually naive and ignorant, a bit of a fool. He's only so confident because he does not really know the danger he's facing. The book of Esther, which we've been studying for the past weeks, does not fall into this cliché. For the most part, the characters here are deadly serious. When Mordecai and Esther and God's people face Haman's dangerous decree in chapters 3 and 4, it's the cause for great fear and lament and mourning. So the book of Esther avoids the naive hero, but it does present us with situations that can only be read with laughter. The surest way to ruin a comedy is to try to explain why it's funny. So I don't want to ruin this book for you. But as we go through, I do want us to ask, why should God want us to laugh in a story with so much danger and death? And what does this tell us about the Christian hope? So today our sermon won't have sermon points per se, but as we go through this story, I want us to keep coming back to this question, to keep it in your mind. Why does God want his people to laugh in the face of death? Maybe a second question for you is, are you laughing? Can you laugh the way God wants you to? Last week, we left Queen Esther on the edge of a cliff. A decree had gone out written by this wicked prime minister, Haman. It was sealed with the king's signet, and he ordered the death of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. So pretty much all the Jews on earth are set to be eradicated at the end of the year. And after a very strained conversation between Mordecai, this older uncle in Esther's life, and Queen Esther, she resolved to approach her husband, who's the Persian king, King Ahasuerus, to plead for her people, the Jews. But she knows that doing so may cost her her life. She explained the situation this way in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to the, whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. After that, Esther was convinced by Mordecai that God would deliver the Jews somehow and that if she did not act in faith, she'd be committing a grave sin against God. And so Esther calls a three-day fast and resolves to go into the king with the words, if I perish, I perish. We're going to pick up the story then in chapter 5. You can find this on page 13, 413. We're just going to start by reading the first verse of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. The narrator wants us to make sure to see Esther is encroaching upon King Hasuerus's royal domain. She's on his territory at his mercy. So what will the king do? Look at verse 2. 
And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. So we can breathe a temporary sigh of relief. The story is far from over, but at least the king's axe-wielding servants didn't just chop off her head. Right? He extends the golden scepter. She finds favor in the king's sight. Ask yourself, what explains the king's favor to Esther? We might go back to the first description we have of Esther, that she was, she was beautiful. Perhaps that's why. The text doesn't tell us why the king does this, but it does make it clear that the, the king here is not simply wanting to get something from Esther. Rather, he's offering to do something for Esther. And not just that, but the king invites her to make a big request, right? He says, up to half my kingdom. That's probably just the kind of things that, that a king says when he wants to be generous. But he's still being generous. He's still wanting to give her a big request. The king's favor here is the extreme opposite of what she feared. Right? She went in fearing execution, and she received favor. Great favor. What explanation could we get for this? You know, again, is it just that Esther has hit the genetic lottery, she's beautiful, and everyone who looks at her shows her favor? Or is it that she's such a righteous figure, she's, she's earned it, she deserves it because she's so holy, and that's why she's getting favor? Or is this just an amazing stroke of good luck? Sometimes the, the chips fall in your favor. The text doesn't tell us, does it? We can observe, though, this pivotal moment when God's people desperately need deliverance, one of Israel's daughters gets this extraordinary favor. One of God's people is there in the throne room and the king wants to do something for her. So here in this Persian emperor's throne room with this murderous decree out there on the books, we have at least the beginning of a turning point. A turning point for God's people in this story of Esther. It once looked like all was lost, right? When that decree had gone out and everyone was lamenting and mourning. But now Esther has found favor. and She's got this open invitation to make a big request. And this makes it more surprising what she does with this big request. Here in the, in the king's court, she doesn't mention anything about the edict or the king's people or that she's Jewish. Instead, she makes a request for the king and his prime minister Haman to join her at a banquet she's prepared that day. And the king is eager to come. So verse 5, he says, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. Even more surprising, when the king and Haman come to her feast, and again the king says, What do you want? What's your wish and your, your request? Up to half my kingdom. She does the same thing again. Come back tomorrow, and I'll tell you. I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll give you my request tomorrow at another banquet. And so they plan to come. What's going on here? Did Esther chicken out? Was something wrong at lunch? Did they run out of wine? We don't know. At the very least, Esther's request does give her a bit more control over the situation. She doesn't have to go back into the throne room to make this request. They're willing to come to her. 
And perhaps most notably, it gives her some control over Haman himself. Do you remember how brusquely Haman was ordered to come in verse 5? Bring Haman quickly. He's just a a lackey of the king now, doing the king and Esther's bidding. He once was an evil mastermind, seeming to be able to control the king. And now he just looks like another one of the king's servants. He's just happy to be invited. In the time between the two feasts, the camera zooms in on Haman and Haman's life. We follow Haman as he leaves the feast, and we see that despite his high position, his great influence over the king, Haman has a problem that he can't solve. Let's start by reading in chapter, in verse, uh, chapter in 5, verse 9. Again, Haman's leaving the feast, the first feast, and he's already received this invitation to come back again and to feast with Esther and the king tomorrow. He heads home in the highest of spirits. Listen to God's word, Esther chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come, to the, come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So as Haman heads home from Esther's feast, we see a kind of replay of what happened in chapter 3. Haman is riding high, has received honors, but Mordecai's disrespect infuriates him. And when Haman gets home, he indulges in some world-class whining, doesn't he? He recounts all that he has, all these accolades, his wealth, his many sons, ten sons we read later in the book. He boasts about this exclusive invitation he's received from Queen Esther to feast with them two days in a row. But again, he says, all of this is worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there disrespecting. It seems like Mordecai's even up the ante by not even rising when he has. He's just sitting there watching him go by, glaring probably. That phrase, Mordecai the Jew, really rings off our modern ears. Like, you can't say that, can you? You shouldn't use that phrase, but... It's a crucial detail in the story because Mordecai's Jewishness is the key factor that keeps being repeated about him. And it's the key factor in Haman's hatred. Right? When, when Mordecai the Jew first offended him, Haman went straight to genocide. Right? Kill all the Jews was his plan. That was his response. Haman is indeed vain and proud, but his big unsolvable problem is that God's people exist. And he hates them. His happiness is ruined by his hatred for God's people. Keep this in mind when you're thinking about why does God want us to laugh in the midst of this dark story? Haman's wife and friends come up with a great solution for a guy like Haman. It fits him perfectly because he's got so much success with the king. Just go to the king and have Mordecai murdered or executed. This is verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high 
about 75 feet, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And so he had the gallows made. This gallows probably would have been tall enough, a, a spike upon which to display Mordecai's body, that all of Susa would have been able to see it, or a great majority of the town could look and see this gallows. But Haman has so much confidence that this is a good plan, that it's a pleasing plan, and that the king will follow through with his request, that he has the gallows built before he heads off to court to talk to the king about this plan. In the story, then, we have a pattern that goes like this. Haman is exalted and joyful. Next, Haman is infuriated by Mordecai. And then, Haman pursues a death sentence against God's people. If the pattern holds here, then Mordecai the Jew is in great danger. He's about to be executed on Haman's gallows. But with the king's favor to Esther, we got this glimmer of hope. Was that an opening for the Jews, or is Haman now on the rise again? Let's go ahead and read the first few verses of chapter 6 to see where the story takes us. We're still in between these two feasts of Esther. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. So the sleepless king brings out the perfect thing to put him back to sleep. We'll just have the dusty old books read. I'll be out like a light in a minute, right? But it just so happens, circumstance of circumstances, that the part that's read is about Mordecai. And the king remembers, I never honored this man. It's a great shame for a king to have his life saved and not to pay back the debt he owed. So he realizes this and he begins to ask around, well, who can I get to, to sit on this task so they can get Mordecai good and honored? And at just that moment, another coincidence, Haman strolls into the court expecting to get his, his wish fulfilled to have Mordecai executed. So picking up the story at the end of verse 5, And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman walked into this court looking for a death warrant against Mordecai the Jew, certain that he'll get it. But the king asks Haman the one question that's perfectly suited to derail Haman from his mission, a question that flatters his pride, even though that's not how the king intended it. Verse 7, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. British preacher Christopher Ash points out that these things that Haman dreams up, they would have been almost treasonous to recommend if Haman had been directly asked this about himself. Like, Haman, what, what honor should I give you? If Haman had said, well, give me this and this and this, it would have been like treason. But because the king presents it in this generic form, this kind of hypothetical man that the king delights to honor, Haman has hit the jackpot. He can ask for the moon and knows it's, he's going to get it. He's finally, he's finally going to be recognized. He's going to parade around the city square on the king's horse, in the king's robes, with the king's crown. The people who see this are going to think, man, I guess Haman is kind of like co-king maybe. He's really, really risen. Of course, he has no idea what's coming. Look in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So here's Haman, the great prime minister, the great mastermind behind the Persian throne, and he becomes the valet and the saddle boy, and the herald for Mordecai the Jew, the one whom the king delights to honor. Notice that King Ahasuerus himself calls Mordecai the Jew. He's not Mordecai the brave. He's not Mordecai the righteous. He's not Mordecai who saved the day. The most noteworthy thing that this story wants us to know about Mordecai is that he's Jewish, which means he belongs to God's people. Almost instantaneously, instantaneously, Mordecai has gone from certain death to being exalted as if he were a king. Of course, it's no big deal for him. He gets off the horse and goes back to the gate. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Once again, just think of the reversal for Haman. He came into the court wanting to see Mordecai's dead body lifted up on this tall spike. But instead, he ends up exalting Mordecai on the king's horse. Just a few days before, Mordecai was out in this same city square wearing sackcloth and ashes, lamenting because of Haman's decree. Just a few hours before, Haman thought Mordecai is as good as dead. As soon as I get this warrant signed. But instead of being Mordecai's executioner... Haman becomes the Grand Marshal of the Mordecai Parade. He's humiliated. He hurries home, head covered in shame. He left that first feast with joy and gladness. Now that's been been evaporated in an instant. And once again, 
It's Mordecai the Jew, this person who's a member of God's family, God's people. He's the one who spoiled everything. Somehow, even Haman's wife and advisors in a few hours have turned on him. They can smell the stench of failure on him. They were the ones who just hours before had said, you should execute him. But now they seem to have remembered this proverb about the Jews. And they say, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome, but will surely fall before him. (coughs) Haman's wife and wise men give us the entire book of Esther here in a nutshell. God's people cannot be overcome. God's enemies will surely fall. That's what this book is all about. Of course, while they're talking, the king's eunuchs come and summon Haman to the second feast. Once again, this great man who's been elevated above all the officials, he's being hurried around by eunuchs, told where to go. He's now being hurried to this feast where he that he boasted so much about being invited to. Let's go ahead and read the end of the story. We're going to read all the way through from verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, down through chapter 8, verse 2 now. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not be, I, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai when the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman's downfall is humiliating, It's total, and it's absurd. He had no idea what he was walking into when he went to court that night, and the king was having a sleepless night. He had no idea that this feast with Esther would be the end of his life. He was just happy there, feasting, drinking wine with the king and queen. But imagine the shock when Haman 
hears the, the king for the third time extend this request. And then she opens her mouth and she starts quoting Haman's edict. The edict that had been sent out for her people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Haman had no idea that Esther was a Jew. But once he's outed, all that he can do is to fall. To fall down on Esther's couch and beg for his life from Esther the Jew. Ironically, this falling down is the final nail in his coffin. His wife had prophesied he would fall. He fell. When he fell at, the, at Esther's couch, the king comes back into the room. And he mistakes Haman's fall on the couch and begging for his life as an assault on Esther. That's when they put the shroud on Haman's head and take him to the gallows. Haman's ruin was total. He lost all his power, his household, and his life in an instant. One minute, he's drinking with the most powerful man in the world. The next minute, he's terror-stricken as his wickedness is revealed. And then he's gone. Body exposed on a 75-foot tall spike for all of Susa to see. There's nothing funny about the execution or Haman's terror. There's nothing funny about a drunken king issuing an execution order in a rage. There's nothing funny about Haman's wicked hatred for God's people. Is it right for us to laugh? This text wants us to laugh, but not that these things as being silly or light. But because God's deliverance for God's people is certain. Mordecai told Esther this, remember, in chapter 4, 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's risen. The relief has come. Haman's own wife and wise men reinforced this, didn't they? God's people cannot be overcome. If you're opposing Mordecai the Jew, you're going to fall. God's enemies will Perish. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The text calls him that several times. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. He's died. He's been hoisted on his own petard. Deliverance has come, or at least it's begun to come. The reason we laugh is because of the joy of being delivered. Because we thought we were headed for certain death, and by miracle upon miracle, God has delivered us. As you read the story, we know that there's no way to argue that Esther and Mordecai masterminded this thing, right? They certainly had their roles to play, but most of what happens here is completely beyond their control, right? Esther had no idea when she called for that two-day feast that in the middle, all of that stuff would happen, right? It looks on the surface like a string of amazing coincidences, but of course, it's silly to call them coincidences, Proverbs 15.25 says that the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Through all these absurd turns, the Lord was the one humiliating his enemy. God's people cannot overcome because we're so clever or because we have such strength of spirit. We can overcome because God works for us. Are you trying to overcome something in your life, thinking you can kind of mastermindedly navigate it? 
Do you think that you can turn all the dials the right way? It's tempting to believe that. It's tempting that there's just a secret sauce of this and that and everything will turn out right. God calls us to trust in him for our deliverance. God delivers his people. And we don't laugh because there's anything funny about sin and evil and suffering. We laugh because God rules and he will deliver us. Now the deliverance we expect is not deliverance from every annoyance or every suffering. It's not deliverance from every earthly enemy or trouble. The deliverance we expect is deliverance from the greatest enemy. Haman here in this story functions as a picture of Satan himself. He would see God's people annihilated. I mean, Satan's goal is to bring dishonor to God by tempting God's people to turn away from God, to turn away from trusting him. If Satan had his way, he would see heaven empty and hell full. He wants to see God's people shamed and God dishonored. But we laugh because Satan has already been defeated by Christ crucified and risen. For us who belong to Christ, Satan has no claim on us because Jesus has paid the price of our sins. So Satan has no basis on which to accuse and condemn us if we trust in Christ's work for us. Our sins are forgiven. But what's most, most amazing about the forgiveness of our sins is the, is the links that God went to to accomplish our deliverance. Think about the coming of Christ. The glorious Son of God taking on flesh. Didn't that seem like an absurd humiliation for Jesus? He's the glorious Son of God. He's been living in eternity with God forever in perfect splendor. He's the creator of all things the creator of every man, and he's handed over to evil men to die. The cross temporarily makes it appear that Satan won, God's son defeated. But then there's that other reversal coming, that glorious reversal. Jesus not only died, but he rose again, and he defeated death and hell and Satan for us. We live very much in Esther's story. Our great enemy has been destroyed, and we wait for the consummation of that victory. Our deliverance has been secured, and our final victory over death is inevitable. We may pass through the waters of death, but we will come out the other side alive and with our Savior because Jesus died and rose again. This is one reason why we laugh. Because our great enemy has been destroyed. Are you able to laugh like this? Are you able to say to Satan, you have no ground to condemn me? If your confidence is in yourself and in your own goodness, whatever laughter you're doing right now will one day be turned to terror at the day of judgment. That's one thing this book shows us very clearly is the terror of a man exposed in his sin. Look again when, at Haman when he's exposed by Esther in chapter 7, verse 6. The king asks Esther to identify the man who dared to kill her people, and she points to him. Haman, this foe, a foe and an enemy, wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king 
and the queen. Terrified. Exposed in his wickedness. He plotted and schemed to destroy God's people. And now his evil work is laid bare. He knew he was done. He was guilty. He knew he was going to be punished. All he could do was beg. Friends, if this is how wicked Haman felt, the enemy of God's people, when he's exposed before an earthly king and queen, sinful monarchs, sinful people like him, imagine how it will be for enemies of God to be exposed before him at the end of all things. What will it be like for you on that day? Every thought, word, and deed laid open before God, the righteous king and judge. Will it be a day of terror for you? Will you be terrified? By the time Haman came to grips with his sin and guilt, it was too late. There was no avoiding what was coming. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's not too late for you. Don't put off facing the terror of your sin to the last day. When your conscience pricks you with guilt. When you're miserable because of choices that you've made or the desires that you have that rule your heart. Turn to Christ. Consider those feelings of guilt and the misery you're going through as messages from God telling you that you need Jesus as your Savior. Know that you can't pay for your own sin. You can't change your own heart. You can't solve your sin problem. But God has provided a solution. Christ came to pay for sin with his death. But Jesus' death doesn't automatically mean that every sinner everywhere is immediately forgiven. The sinners who are forgiven are the ones who look at Jesus on the cross and say, That's what I deserve, and even worse. I deserve hell, but I trust that Jesus on the cross paid for every one of my sins. I believe that God's right, wrathful judgment against me was poured out on him. Today is the day to look at the terrifying reality of your sin and cast it upon Jesus. He will bear it away as far as the east is from the west. Our brother Tom's testimony was a testimony of someone who had his sins taken by Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you'll be transformed from being a terrified enemy of God, quivering before his judgment seat into a beloved son, rejoicing in confident hope Standing in God's throne room. Let your terror be turned to laughter by Jesus. Believe that Jesus, lifted up on the cross, died for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray you'll give us understanding, understanding of our own hearts and what Jesus has done for us. We pray as God's people that we will indeed laugh 
not in a way that makes light of sin or of the terror that comes to those who oppose you, but the laugh of confident joy that we have been delivered, that we have come to that unshakable kingdom, that we are safe in your hands. I pray for my friends here who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Father, we pray that you would use this word to bring before them the terror of their sin, but also the great mercy you offer in Jesus. We pray you'll grant them faith. In Jesus' name, amen.